Good morning, everyone. Have you come to bless the Lord today? Amen. Let's stand together. Lord, we lift you up in this place, oh God. We magnify you. We glorify you. We praise you, Lord. I just pray, oh God, you have your way in this place today. Hallelujah. Let's sing to him. And you give me joy, Lord, you, you give, give me
praise the Lord. Go ahead and give that choir a hand clap on their way down. Good job, guys. Oh, praise God. Hallelujah. Thank the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Is it good to be in church today? Is it good to know that Jesus is still alive on the throne? A name above every other name. No other name. Under heaven, whereby a man can be saved, but by the name of Jesus Christ. God has highly exalted him and given him that name that is above every other name. That the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to fest. confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God the Father. Can you say amen today? Amen. Praise the Lord. All right, ladies and gentlemen, today if you have your Bibles, we are going to jump to a series today. You may have gotten my message last night later as I um, let you know that we're going to be starting a series today. And I'm not sure exactly how many um, sermons we're going to have in this, but I also want that sermon titled up as well. Uh, the series is going to be, uh, well, he just had it up there don't you understand yet is what our overall sermon series is going to be on. The sermon of today is going to be Beware of the Leaven. All right, let's go to Mark chapter 8. I want to go ahead and read the base scripture for you today. I've got a lot of ground to cover, so I'm not going to talk a lot. I've got several announcements to make. I'm going to wait till the close of the sermon because I need to get into the heart of this so that we can finish it today. Mark chapter 8, verse 11 through 21 is going to be the passage in which we are going to uh, base our entire series off of. So I will read it today, and then we're going to go back, and we'll take, obviously, a few verses of that in which we're going to teach on today, and then we'll get on deeper into it in the coming weeks. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, speaking of Jesus, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation demand a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and went to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to take bread and only had one loaf with them in the boat. Now this passage, is this came to me the first of the week. It got in my heart pretty heavy. Monday, I guess, and I text Brian and said, I think we've got a series on the way because I can't get it all in one sermon. But this just, this spoke powerfully to me this week as I read it. And I want you to grab what I grabbed. Then he gave them strict orders and he said, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. They were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. Aware of this, because Jesus knows everything, he said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember? Do you see all the questions? We're going to deal with all these questions in the coming weeks. When I broke the five loaves and the, for the 5,000, how many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? Twelve, they told him. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. And he said to them, Don't you understand yet? Now, I've had experience in my life of being on both sides of the teacher's desk or the teacher's podium. I've spent much time as a teacher, but I've also spent time as a student. 
And I must tell you, I've had some wonderful teachers in my life, and some of you pupils out there, those even in school, even younger kids, some great teachers and instructors in your life. And whenever I've had the opportunity to play the role of teacher or instructor myself, a.k.a. we call it a pastor, a teacher, I have tried to be effective in the way that my that my teaching can be effective. I want you to leave saying, man, I really get what he said. I want you to leave every Sunday. I don't care if it's but one or two nuggets. I want you to leave saying, oh my goodness, the Holy Spirit spoke to me today. And I have, been, I have discovered something that is very, very important in it all. Something that should have really been obvious a long time ago. And that is that effective learning is not only how good the speaker can engage the congregation or the pupils. But effective learning has to do with the condition of the student's heart. In other words, if I'm teaching and you're sitting there and you're scrolling on Facebook or you're texting people. Don't everybody shout at once. If that's what you do during teaching and preaching time, then the chances are you are going to leave this building with little to no benefit from my teaching. However, if you've got a phone out, and I know some of you do it, and you're sitting there and you're typing notes, or, or perhaps you, you're writing notes like the old school do, and you're taking notes, and you go back and, and maybe even you review that, do you know what you're going to do? Obviously, you're going to take in more from doing that and get more benefits from my teaching than the other person is going to get. And as the morning passage shows us, I want you to understand that even a great teacher, a.k.a. Jesus being the greatest teacher, cannot make effective learning happen unless the students are in the right frame of mind and in the right frame of heart to hear it. That is why when I preach my prayer for God to do to our hearts is that if there is any fallow ground, if there is any hard ground, any hard hearts as I so see, what I pray that God would do is break up the fallow ground so that a seed will be planted and it will grow and you can benefit from it. And I believe that everyone in this building today would agree with me that the greatest teacher of all time is Jesus Christ. I think that you all would agree with me that we could call him the master teacher. But even he became, if I dare say, he became frustrated in his efforts by the fact that he was constantly pouring into his students, the disciples, constantly teaching them, trying to give them lessons, but yet due to the hardness of their heart and there were dull of hearing that regardless of how the master teacher taught, effective learning was not happening in my text. They did not get it. When we look at the gist of the text, and I want to go around it really quickly, in Mark chapter 8, it tells us about Jesus. He's performed one of the greatest miracles in his ministry. It is not only the first time he has done it, but the second time. Back in chapter 6, Jesus has fed 5,000 people. The Bible says 5,000 men beside women and children. Many teachers and historians say that this is probably around 25,000 people that he filled, that he fed with five small loaves of bread and two small fish. What a miracle that must have been. We can't even fathom it. And then if that wasn't enough, in chapter 8, we've got a few more bread, loaves of bread and a few fish, and he feeds this time 4,000 people with it. 
And after each miracle, he tells the disciples, all right, guys, get your baskets out. Let's go gather it. Gather what? There's only a few fish, only a little bit of bread. But the first time they get 12 basketfuls. The second time they get seven baskets full of fragments. We call those leftovers. Anybody in the church like leftovers? If you're Southerner and don't like leftovers, you're weird. If you don't understand what is better three days later for spaghetti means, you're weird. Now, I don't want to preach this point too hard, and, and I really don't want to bog down in it, but, 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 but it must have been quite the experience for them, those disciples, to gather those fragments. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being the person that's holding the basket? And you walk around to 25,000 people, and they just keep putting leftovers in. Can you even imagine what it's like to be these disciples? Particularly not just partaking and taking up the baskets, but literally being eyewitnesses to these two amazing miracles. Fragments, my goodness, this would have absolutely permanently been an impression on their minds. It really should have changed their lives forever or so one would think that it would have. Well, immediately after that, the Pharisees come running to Jesus. They confront him. These, these jokers watched Jesus like a hawk. They were intimidated by his presence. He threatened their power. He threatened their influence. He threatened more than that, their false teachings. The Pharisees, just to give you a little background, have made it their mission to catch Jesus in a lie. They know that he's gaining popularity. The crowds are following him. If we could just get him to make a failure, if we could catch him in a lie and make him fail, we could get the upper hand. Now, it's hard for church folks to grasp this thought, but not everyone loved Jesus the way you do. The Bible said they hated him. The Pharisees tried to kill him. A matter of fact, your Bible even tells you on several occasions that they tried to kill Jesus, but God would not permit it for his time had not yet come. But it did not deny the fact that the Pharisees, Herod, all of them, even the Sadducees, were plotting to kill the King of Kings, our Lord, we know as Jesus. Now imagine this. After all that Jesus has already done, including these two remarkable miracles, we've got about 30,000 people that have been fed from a few fish and a few loaves of bread. These religious, religious leaders came to him, and guess what they did? They demanded a miraculous sign from heaven. Imagine that, folks. Imagine that. You talk about getting frustrated. That's like somebody praying for a line of 12 people that are sick and laying hands on them, all of them being healed. And at the church, somebody walks up and says, Preacher, could you give us a sign from heaven? I'm going to slap them in the head too. That's your sign. <clears throat> Try to knock it back right in there. The miraculous sign. Apparently, all that Jesus has done wasn't good enough for them. 
And they were, of course, making this a man from a, from a doubtful heart. They were making it from a wrong heart, a heart of unbelief. Even if they, Jesus knew this. Jesus was no dummy. He knew that even if he accommodated their requests, they were still going to find reasons to not believe him and to try to find fault in him. And so he sharply refused them. He walks away from them. And the Bible said he got into the boat and he headed to the other side. Now, I truly believe today that most of us, we truly want to be taught of the Lord Jesus. That's why we come to church. I mean, if we didn't want to hear what God has to say, then why would we be here? He's our Lord. He's our master. We love him today. We sincerely, some of you want to be front row seat, front row pupils, front row students, and receive everything that God has for you. But as much as we would want to be his students, I doubt that we would have possibly wanted it more except for Judas. I would say with the exception of Judas, we wouldn't want it more than those 12 apostles. No one, no one could have had a greater opportunity to learn from the greatest of all teachers than these disciples had. They were literally in his bodily presence. This is what I want you to grab. Because in this series you don't understand yet, I want you to know who we're dealing with. We are dealing with people that literally have Jesus in his bodily presence. I preach to you today, we'll have an altar call and I'll say to you, oh, somebody ought to reach out and touch Jesus as he passes by. What am I saying to you? Grab him physically? You can't. It's through faith now that I reach out and I touch him by faith and he touches me back. And all of a sudden heaven begins to happen in earth. The will of God is done. But I have to reach out in faith. But not the disciples. The disciples can reach out and touch him. They're hugging him. They're loving him. They're praising him. They're worshiping him. If they've got a question for him, they go over there literally with their mouth and with his ears. They talk back and forth. Everybody still with me? We touch him by faith. They literally could touch him. They've known him personally and intimately for around a period of three and a half years. They ate with him. They walked with him. They literally slept next to him, probably by campfires and tents because he had nowhere to lay his house, nowhere he called home. They served with him. They listened to every word he preached. They even had the encouragement in the process of having one another. Can you imagine? What an opportunity to learn in. Not only do you have Jesus, but you've got other disciples or apostles around you to encourage you through it all. But we see the misunderstanding in the text. And I need to share briefly with you about the nature of their misunderstanding. But that misunderstanding is not the most important thing for us to notice in the passage. For us, I believe that the greatest lesson is to be found in the reasons why they misunderstood. We must understand it is a heart condition that prevented them from learning the greatest lessons that the Lord had been trying to teach them. But let's begin by considering the misinterpretation or misunderstanding itself. You can see it, can't you? Jesus is in the boat with them. They're going to the other side. Perhaps thinking a great deal, Jesus is literally thinking over and over about this confrontation he has just had when he rebuked those Pharisees and walked off. It's going over, playing over and over in his mind. Now, it may be hard for you to do this because Jesus is God, but Jesus also was fully human. He is in the flesh. You cut him, he bleeds. He's got feelings. And he can get angry. 
In one passage, you remember that he got his whip out and he beat people in the temple. Y'all remember that? The same Lord told us, be angry and sin not. I believe at this time he's angry. He is frustrated. He's got this human feeling of frustration over the wicked attitude of the heart in these Pharisees and what they've just displayed. I believe that what Jesus is doing for you Southerners, he is stewing over it. It won't let him go. It won't turn him loose. And in my text, it is an awkward text. The passage is awkward because just in the middle of riding in a boat, he turns around and says, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And if you're one of the students, you're sitting here saying, all right, where in the world did that come from? What did he mean? Jesus, this master teacher, the greatest teacher of all time. He uses leaven as an illustration. If you've ever baked bread, and I haven't, if you've ever been around when fresh bread is cooking, and I haven't, but I've got Google.com. And I can tell you that you put a small amount of leaven while that lump of dough is still in the bowl. You put a little leaven or aka yeast in it. And what happens with the yeast, you begin to knead it into the, the hole of the dough. And when you set it out and get ready to bake it, what happens? The yeast has permeated. That means it has absolutely enveloped. It has invaded the contents. Every single, it has soaked down into it. And that way when you cook your bread, instead of half of it rising, if it is kneaded improperly and the right amount of leaven is put in, the whole lump is going to rise in that pan. And God looks at his disciples and said, you may think right now, See, us church people are good at saying, oh, that's not a big deal. But Jesus said, it is a big deal. Right now, it may seem like I'm popular. And right now, at the beginning of it, just like a new pastor, they walk in the door, everybody gets excited, say a few years, it's like, oh my gosh, is he ever going to leave? They're sitting here. They love Jesus. He's the new kid on the block. He's always doing miracles. He says, right now, I may be popular. And it may seem like the Pharisees, and Herod aren't a big deal. They may seem little in a lot of people's sight, have small influence. But I want to warn you, if you let it get into you and into your church, it is going to contaminate the whole loaf. Are y'all ready for this? Let's go. Point number one. The le- We've only got two points. That's it. Point number one is the leaven of the Pharisees. What is the leaven of the Pharisees? Well, I believe that it is this, their legalistic emphasis on religious rules and regulations. They believed that righteousness before God could be achieved by keeping true to the strict letter of God's law. That means they followed a religion of works. Jesus came to fulfill the word. And the Bible said that he came to fulfill that law for us perfectly so that sinners could now be saved in a way anyone could be saved before. And that is by faith in Jesus Christ. Look at, let me show you Luke chapter 18. I I just wanted to read this because if I quote it and say it fast, y'all won't get it. Watch. He also told his disciples to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous 
And what did they do? They looked down on everyone else. You ever been around those Christian snobs? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. I'm just preaching to you what the Bible says. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee, the other is a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, can I tell somebody, when you pray, it is not a time for you to worship yourself. It is not a time for you to let God know how good you've been. Woo! So he's standing praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Greedy. Unrighteous. Y'all see why I read this now, don't you? Adulterers. This is the part that absolutely kills me. Or even like, oh, he's over there. Like this tax collector on the other side of the altar over here. God help us, Jesus. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven in shame but kept striking his chest saying, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this one went down to his house more justified than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself shall be exalted. You see, there is a scripture that states the obvious to us. It is found by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 9. He said, a little leaven leavens a whole batch of dough. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying to the church is just a small amount of yeast will make the whole loaf of bread rise. What does that mean to us? A little bit of legalistic teaching will quickly spread throughout the body. It will infiltrate our hearts and our minds. Oh, I wish somebody hear what I'm telling you of individual believers until finally the entire congregation, the entire church is contaminated by the leaven of the Pharisee. Can I be real, can I be real with y'all for just a couple minutes really quick? Can I? I grew up in a legalistic church. Somebody said, well, you're on Facebook Live. You shouldn't say that. That's fine. If they were standing here, I'd preach it still. I grew up in a legalistic church. It needs to be called what it was. I recall getting ready to go, me and some of the young people, to a crab family concert. Some of you Southern Gospel people out there, you may remember an old song. I sing it sometimes. I still like it. Through the fire. He's going to take me through the fire. He never promised the cross would not. Anyhow, y'all get what I'm saying. Through the fire. I'm getting ready to go hear that song. Boy, it just lights my fire every time. But I'm called to the office. And I am rebuked by a pastor that tells me pretty much, do you realize you shouldn't be at this concert to which I say, why is that? They sing gospel music. She said, but haven't you heard that the women wear pants? Haven't you heard? I've heard that they wear jewelry. I was rebuked for that, so I decided that I would rebuke the pastor about attending Dollywood where women rode horseback in pants that they were dead. 
to. To which she replied, enjoy the concert. I don't have time to tolerate the leaven of the Pharisees. Back in my day, we used to compete to see which church could win the award. I called it, pun intended, the Most Holy Church Award. Made sense, right? How does this stuff happen? How do we get here? What do we have to do? A few people get sanctimonious, meaning they think they are better than everyone else. They are holier than everyone else. They are closer to God than everyone else. The higher they wear their hair, the closer they are to heaven. The longer the skirt, the longer the sleeves, the more they look like Jesus. Y'all don't know anything about what I'm talking about. I don't mind being holy. And I believe that God made it clear. Be ye holy as I am holy, saith the Lord. That's pretty clear. I don't mind being holy, but I refuse to be legalistic. And then the preacher starts preaching about everything. My first TV. Anybody remember that when you got your first TV? I was watching Will of Fortune. Mama rode by when I lived across from her. Says, son, I hope it's not what I, what I think it is. What you mean, Mom? What do you think it is? Well, I saw the lights off and I saw something flashing. I hope you haven't went and bought a TV. To which I said, well, Mother, you've been watching Andy Griffith's show on your computer monitor. I'm just watching Will of Fortune on my TV. It's a little bigger than yours. We have to be careful, ladies and gentlemen. This type of stuff is the leaven of the Pharisee. And the next thing you know, the entire church has taken on the attitude. I'm glad I'm not like those people over there. Jesus hates that stuff, folks. And he was telling the disciples, don't you ever forget where you came from. You were lost in your sins on your way to a devil's hell when I found you. Had it not been for the grace of God, you'd still be sitting on the bar stool drinking the alcohol. If it were not for the grace of Almighty God, you'd be in a ditch somewhere high on drugs. So don't you ever think you're better than other people because you aren't. They came to, you came to Calvary the same way they're going to come to Calvary. You've been dipped in the same blood that they're going to be dipped in. Hallelujah. Oh God, Brian, I don't know if I'm going to be able to finish. Jesus, help me. He was telling his disciples, don't ever forget it. The Pharisees, they rejected Jesus so fiercely and would not believe on him. Jesus warns his disciples, don't follow after these things and be contaminated by their way of thinking and their characteristics. We're going to love folks. We're going to love folks, church. That's what I'm saying. This is a warning to us that we don't become legalistic. That we don't look down on the... We may not agree with them. We may not like their lifestyles. But we are going to simply preach the word of truth out of a heart of love. And even more than that, we are going to live out our Christian faith. And we're going to do it in such love that the world will know we are like the Pharisees. We want them to know that we wouldn't be here without the grace of God. All and nothing we can...
can do will ever make us worthy to get into heaven except the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So in short, the leaven of the Pharisees was a holier-than-thou attitude. To put it bluntly, it was hypocrisy. Practice what you preach. Don't say you love people and act like the devil around them or treat them as if they aren't good enough to be in your presence. How long can I preach today? Can I have like 15 minutes? Can y'all do that? All right, if you can't, get up and leave. Point number two. Everybody's going to watch you too, so it'll be awkward for all of us. Point number two. The leaven of Herod. Now there is also the leaven of Herod. Jesus speaks of this. It's a, it's a separate kind of leaven. Because in my text he said, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and... Somebody say and... And the leaven of Herod. So there's two different ones. Now I believe that the, the leaven of King Herod and the Sadducees, they had aligned themselves with King Herod to go against Jesus. Do you know what it was? It was the philosophy of worldliness. Oh, God help me preach today. It was the belief that spiritual things didn't exist. They even went as far as to say spiritual things really didn't matter. The good life could be achieved apart from God through secular means. In their day, it was politics, human reasoning. Some even based it off of material prosperity. So even though Herod and the Sadducees were hostile toward the Pharisees, they were at least in agreement with each other in their joint hostility towards Jesus Christ. And Jesus warns them, watch out for both forms of this leaven. Can I be real for just a few more minutes, folks? The church as a whole has been permeated infiltrated, invaded by worldliness. Don't everyone shout at once, but we have allowed worldliness to creep into our churches. How does this happen? Again, the pastor starts sowing leaven from the pulpit until the entire church, the entire batch of dough is permeated with it. It starts with the pastor, God help me. But pastors and teachers start preaching a watered-down gospel. That is the leaven of Herod. This seeker-sensitive stuff has absolutely destroyed the mentality of the church and what it was supposed to be. I know it's going to get quiet in here. The seeker-sensitive church has destroyed what the gospel of Jesus Christ is supposed to be. Let me hurry and get through this. In recent years, a new movement within the evangelical church has come into vogue, commonly referred to as the seeker-sensitive church. Generally, this movement has seen a great deal of growth. Many seeker churches are now mega churches, and I've wrote out a lot of this, with well-known pastors who are riding a wave of popularity. We call them celebrities in the evangelical world. The seeker-sensitive movement claims that millions of people are being saved. They demand and command vast resources in order to do this. And it continues to gain popularity and seems to be attracting millions of unchurched people into its fold. So what is the movement about? It doesn't sound bad right now, does it? Where does it come from? And most importantly, the question I want to know, because Jesus had to deal with it, is, is it biblical? Basically, the secret sense of church tries to reach out to the unsaved person by making, are you ready? By making the church experience as comfortable, inviting, and non-threatening as possible to them. The hope is that the person 
will believe in the gospel. The idea behind the concept is to get as many unsaved people through the door as possible. And the church leadership, they're willing to do about anything, any means possible to accomplish this goal. Theatrics, musical entertainment are the norm in church services to keep the unsaved person from getting bored as he does not do well with traditional church. State-of-the-art technology and lighting and sound are components of the secret sense of churches, especially the larger ones. Expertly run nurseries, daycare, adult daycares, community programs, and much more common fixtures belong in the large secret churches. Short sermons. Typically, pastor will preach around 20 minutes at most and usually focus on self-improvement in your life. Supporters of this movement will say that the single reason behind all of this expense that we're spending with the gospel and this state-of-the-art tech gear and theatrics is to reach the unsaved with the gospel. However, rarely from any of these pulpits do you hear sin preached about. Very seldom do you hear hell preached about, if ever. Very seldom do you ever hear about repentance and change of heart. Because in the secret church, such doctrines are divisive among the body. The secret sensitive church movement has pioneered a new method for founding churches. In other words, when they get ready to place one, they have a demographic study and community surveys. And what they do is they ask the unchurched what they want in a church. If you can't see a problem with that, then you may want to open your Bible right the time you get home today and read a little bit. Never in God's word was it intended for the sinner to tell us how to have church. It is not the place of the sinner. It is not the right of the sinner. God help Jimmy preach today. This is a kind of if you build it, they will come mentality. The reasoning is that if you get the unsaved better entertainment, then they can receive elsewhere, a.k.a. the church down the road, our due church, our due life, I I love that term, in a non-threatening way, then they will come and hopefully they will accept the gospel. The mindset is to hook the unchurched with great entertainment, give him a message he can digest that's relevant and provide second to none services. The focus of the secret church then is not Christ-centered. It has become the leaven of Herod. It is man-centered, worldly-centered. The main purpose of the secret church existence is to give people what they want or meet their felt needs, what they feel like they need. Further, the seeker-friendly gospel presentation is based on the idea that if you believe in Jesus, He's going to make things better. Oh, your husband or your wife, man, y'all going to be in a better relationship. Your co-workers, oh, y'all going to get along so much better. Your children, they're going to, oh, they're going to get straight A's. Everything's going to be better. The main purpose is simply this. That's the message. As if to the unsaved person, this God that we serve is a great cosmic genie. If you struck him the right way, you will get exactly what you want. In other words, if you profess to believe in Jesus, God's going to give you a better life. God's going to give you a better marriage. God's going to give you better relationships and you have purpose in life finally. So for all intents and purposes, the seeker-sensitive movement is a type of system that is based on giving unbelievers whatever they want. A.K.A. Worldliness. A.K.A. the leaven of Herod. Beware of the leaven 
of Herod. So too often, they get, air quotes, saved, a profession of faith. But when circumstances of their lives don't immediately change for their material good, and they don't see things getting better, they forsake Christ, believing He has failed them. How are people responding to the seeker-sensitive movement? Many people have responded and begun attending these seeker-sensitive churches. Many people indeed have come to faith in Jesus. Right? God even said at one time he could use sinners if he had to to bring people to him. He can use donkeys to straighten them out. Don't tell me he can't use a charismatic speaker. What a thought. All right, let's go, let's go. What, this is the question I have today. What, this is the bigger question. What does God have to say about all this? Is it possible for a movement to be successful from a human worldly perspective but be unacceptable to God? See, God has not been vague on what His church is to be like. He gave us instruction. He didn't leave us second guessing. He has given us direction on how men are to lead His church. The ordinance of, of the church. The worship of the church. It is to be on the Lord's day. It is to consist of preaching and teaching, prayer, fellowship. Yeah, you even take up offerings in Colossians 3.16. But here, the seeker movement has missed the mark completely with its man-centered focus. When an unsaved person enters into a church, should our goal as a church be to make them as comfortable as possible? When it comes to kindness, when it comes to loving people, when it comes to saying, oh, you can have my seat. Oh, praise God, that's great. That's the love of Christ in action, especially when you give up your seat. They should be treated well. They should be treated with respect. That's right. No matter what lifestyle they live, the church should love them. Are we all on the same page? However, according to my Bible, an unsaved person should never feel at home in a church. Pastor is wound up today. I'm sweating like a stuck hog. My God, have mercy, but I'm just going to finish this out. Why shouldn't a sinner feel at home in church? It is not the body of sinners. We are the body of Christ. God, help me today. I'm feeling it. As churches, we shouldn't be competing over who serves the best coffee to their guests. We should be more concerned with preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified, preaching the full gospel of Jesus Christ, not just parts that tickle their ear so they'll come back next Sunday. That is not what the church has been called to be. And anybody that has that mentality has been permeated with the leaven of Herod and Jesus with frustration said beware of the leaven of Herod oh God help me Jesus our preaching and teaching should be truth it should make people living in sin feel uncomfortable we should preach a gospel that will make us uncomfortable make us realize See the state of our soul. Recognize that we are a sinner in need of a Savior. Realize that there is a place called hell that if I don't get my life right with God,
We cannot avoid this fact. For those that try to circumvent or avoid this type of conversation in their sermons, they are not really loving people. True love is the true word of God. It is truth. And the truth shall set you free. So if we were to apply the seeker-sensitive movement to evaluate Jesus' ministry, this is what we would find. we get some interesting results. On one occasion, John chapter 6, Jesus preached literally to thousands of people. He clearly offended a pile of them because this is what the Bible said. They deserted him. And I quote, And from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Do you know what the Greek word in the verse means to make it simple for everybody and relevant so you can grab it? It means they left and they ain't come back. They gone. Jesus wasn't seeker sensitive. No wonder. Because God had already said to them, in this world you're going to experience persecution. He has already told us that the rest of the world, unbelievers, they're not going to come to our church and be comfortable. They are going to look at us and they're going to say, those people are fools. Because in the world's eyes, he says, you are foolish. He went even deeper and said, because of me, your brother may turn against you. Your mother, oh, this is tough preaching right here, but I'm just telling you what Jesus said. Your mother and your father may leave you and betray you if you pick up your cross and follow me. Are you still willing to follow me? Jesus never intended for the church to be popular with unbelievers. Jesus never intended for pastors to be popular with unbelievers. He said, this is what he said. He said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I'm hurrying as I close. The basic philosophy, theology, purpose, and the end of the seeker sense of movement. It is entirely man-centered. However, some would say regardless of this purpose or motive and outcome of the movement being wrong, we can't argue with the fact and the principle of getting unsaved people through the doors to hear the gospel. I mean, any exposure to the gospel is a good thing, right? But the problem is that many seeker-sensitive churches don't preach the true gospel. It is simply a shell of the truth. It is hollow. It avoids the truths of sin, hell, and holiness of God. And we have people getting, I'm going to do it, quotes, saved. They don't even realize it, but they are being permeated with the leaven of Herod right from the pulpit every single Sunday. God help us. Beware of the leaven of Herod. Jesus warned them. You'd agree with me. I'm sure it's important. An important lesson that Jesus wanted his followers to learn. And yet, when Jesus told them this, they didn't get it. They thought he was talking about bread simply because they had forgotten to take some bread with them along for the journey. They were completely misunderstanding Jesus' instruction to them. When the gospel writer Matthew writes it, he said it this way. He said, Jesus said, how is it that you don't understand when I told you, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees? He said, I wasn't talking about bread. Then they understood that he was talking about the doctrines and the teachings of the Pharisees. So that was the nature of their misunderstanding. Come on to the piano. The misunderstanding of Jesus. But the things that we are going to concentrate on in the coming sermons are the reasons why they misunderstood. Now I'm going to close with this today as she plays. You might be going through a challenge right now. Real life, right? You might be going through a trial. A disappointment of some kind. 
But I want to tell somebody today that that challenge has not come into your life by accident. Jesus, the master teacher, is seeking to teach you something important about himself in it and through it. He is tailoring the story of each of our lives as a way to teach us that he loves us and teaching us to love him, trust him, obey him, depend on him more faithfully as we go through these things. We are constantly in his school, ladies and gentlemen. He is the greatest teacher there ever was. And class is always in session. The question is, are we in the right frame of mind to learn these valuable lessons as we should? It's really up to us whether or not we are going to be teachable. So today's lesson number one is beware of the leaven. Don't act like the Pharisees, church, and think that we're holier than everyone else on this side. Don't act like the Herodians and allow worldliness to control you and your church. There is a happy medium that we aren't so holy in our own eyes that we become holy and holier than thou in the eyes of other people and sinners. There is a happy medium where we love people to Jesus, but we never stop preaching the truth of God with love. Jesus says to his disciples, the problem with the church is we have jumped from one extreme to the other extreme. But God is calling us right here to middle ground and saying simply serve him, love him, serve and love others and let that permeate through the body of Christ. You, listen folks, we don't want to be the church that people say if you want to feel better every time you leave. Go down there. Go to the ball game for that. Unless you Clemson in a losing time. But if they're going to win, go there for that. The church was never intended for us to walk out every Sunday thinking, whoa, man, I'm going to make it through the week. I'm great. I'm doing good. Yeah, whoa, whoa, whoa. The purpose of the church is to preach the Word of God. The purpose of the church is to step on my toes. And sometimes, oftentimes, I do it myself. Just because I preach every Sunday don't mean that I don't step on my toes because sometimes mine are bruised really, really bad. And the Holy Spirit's working in me just as much as He's working in you. He's just using me to hold the mic and preach the sermon, but it don't mean that he's not talking to my heart and working inside of me with what he's told me to say. This is what the church is. This is how we grow. This is how we change. We want to be the church that the, if anything has permeated among us, if there is any leaven among us, it is if you want the truth, then go to Gap Hill. We cannot always say that you're not going to leave feeling convicted. We're not always going to say that you're not going to leave feeling like, you know, you're not just jumped out of a bed of roses. It may be hard and it may be a sermon that steps on your toe, but at the end of the day, you're going to grow in Jesus and you're going to learn more about God and when a trouble comes in your life you're not going to be so shallow that you're going to give up because all you ever heard was a watered down 
sermon, but you're going to say, hey, my preacher told me I'm going to go through trials and I'm going to go through tribulation. But if I'll be faithful, God is going to bring me out on the other side. The fad of tickling gears is in style. It is not something we didn't know was coming. Jesus told us long ago that in the last days, they will search out teachers because of their itching ears. And they will say to the preacher, preacher, preach us fables. Just as long as we leave feeling good and accomplished and we're somebody great. Tell us how good of people we are. They'll seek out teachers like that. But I'm glad today that there are still some folks that want to hear the truth. They do not want a watered-down gospel. I told y'all I had a lady I preached one one morning on Sodom and Gomorrah. I won't ever forget it. I had two ladies walk in the back door. It was obvious to me that they were in a relationship. They kind of were hugged up to one another. My people, I was proud of them. They loved on those people, shook their hand to them. They were so glad to see them. I did the same even before service, even after service. But it was obvious that they were homosexuals. Let's just say it the way it was. It was obvious. We, I mean, you, you don't have to have discernment. And I remember that morning, I, I've never seen these people before. And God had directed me to Genesis, to the story of Abraham and Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't know these people are coming. It's not, I hate clothesline preachers. I, I grew up with that. That was 11 of the Pharisees. I grew up with that, so I don't like that. That morning, I told God, I said, God, listen, these people have come to our church today. The last thing that they need for me to do is get up there. I can't preach about Sodom and Gomorrah without preaching against homosexuality. You know the story. The angels are in the house. The men said, send out those men to us that we may be with them. And Lot says, no, no, no. You can have my daughters that are virgins. They didn't want the women. Read your Bible. You cannot tell the story without knowing that was a major sin as to why that place was destroyed to begin with with fire. But the Holy Spirit said, I told you to preach it. You preach it. I preached it as loving as I could, but I named what sin was. And I explained the story and I preached my outline just like I'd prepared, didn't miss a beat. And after service, that lady, one of them, walked up to me in which I thought I was about to get punched in the face. And you're bracing yourself while you're talking, biting your tongue, waiting for it. But that woman looked at me she said, I want to tell you something, preacher. Oh. She said, I want to thank you that you preached the truth today. From that moment, God taught me a lesson. As I walked off, almost tears in my eyes because it touched me that much that somebody in their condition could tell me that after hearing something like that. The Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, when I tell you to preach something, you just preach it. I'll take care of the rest. You preach it with love, and I'll do the work. Let's all stand today, folks. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. God, I'm not holier than anybody else. 
Sometimes I feel like Paul, I'm the least of his apostles. I'm the least of his preachers. I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to do this. I'm not worthy to do this. I have those moments. I never want to look down on somebody else. Forgive me, God, for judging when I ride by somebody and they're holding a sign saying I need food and automatically we've been trained and I know it's the world, the world that we live in, but automatically in our hearts, the thoughts that we have towards those people, not even knowing who they are, God help us. Help us. The leaven of that old Herod, God help us that we're not so, that we're so worldly that sinners can come. The devil can sit on the front pew and enjoy our services. God help us. That we don't strive to entertain people, always tell them what they want to hear so they'll come back, so they'll pay their money to the church. God help us not to base it all of that. Help us just to simply love you. Love other people. That's what you've called us to do. If you love him today, would you shout amen? I want to close in prayer. Father, we praise you today. We thank you for who you are. I'm asking you at the Gap Hill Church of God right now in Jesus' name. I'm throwing out that leaven. I want it to permeate this congregation. I want them to understand that the way to win the sinner is not lying to them. That the way to win the sinner is not always just agreeing with them so they won't get upset. I'm asking that you let it permeate through our congregation today. That we love people just like you loved us. And regardless of what lifestyle they live, regardless of how deep in sin they are, help us that we would simply not look down on them but that we would let them know that we are there for them that we want to help them that we want to encourage them invite them to church let them hear the gospel of Jesus Christ it is the only thing that can change their lives Father help us to be the church you've called us to be in Jesus name somebody shout amen I am so sorry that I've been longer than usual today. I knew it was a longer sermon. I thank you for bearing with me today. I promise you next week it should be just a little shorter. It won't be 20 minutes. I preached against that this morning. I can't help it. I do want to make a few announcements. We're going to close Gap Kids Bash. is going to be Friday, February 16th, 630 to 8.30. Go ahead and set up for us back there, Bryce. Thank you. K3 through 5th grade. Uh, there will be blow-ups, there will be games and food. It is going to be so much fun. You do not want to miss that. So 3K through 5th grade is going to be February 16th, 6.30 to 8.30. And that's going to be where at, Ann? That's going to be at the gym. All right. All right, we also have hoodies. If you ordered hoodies, I think that Bryce, there was three people I know that did, so he's got them out there. There's a few more. We're about to take that thing down, so if you want one, you better grab it. Also, for prayer requests, my wife Jennifer and Anza, they're both sick today, not feeling well at all. I just pray for our family. Also, for Adley Jane Monroe, thank God she came home. Praise the Lord. No, no and Seth and Carrie... I'm surprised they're not here this morning. I'm just kidding. But they, 
I picked at him at the hospital and I said, I remember Adley Jane came to church. She was like six days old. Pray for her. She's going to be out for probably a month or so, maybe three to four weeks, just to make sure she don't pick up anything after that surgery. Mildred Burrell also had a fall this week. We're praying for God to touch her. And also continue prayers for Miss Ada Eads. She needs our prayers. She's having some issues and asked for a prayer request today. God bless you guys. We love and appreciate you. See you Wednesday night.